Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Of the four gospel writers, Matthew and Luke give us the only details about Jesus' birth. Uh, Between the two of them, we can answer uh, the basic questions of who, how, when, where, and why. Uh, How was he born? By the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit who caused the virgin to conceive. When was he born? Uh, During the reign of Herod the Great when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Where was he born? In Bethlehem of Judea. Why was he born? To save his people from their sins. But what about the who question? Who is Jesus? Who is this child that was born of a virgin in Bethlehem during the reign of Herod the Great? The who question has been asked a lot. If you read through the four gospels, you'll see that many people have inquired into the identity of Jesus As the storm threatened to sink the boat, Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and waves. Immediately, the storm stopped. Jesus' disciples witnessed this and asked, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus was eating at Simon's house when a woman anointed his feet with oil. Jesus told her that her sins are forgiven and Everybody at the table began asking himself, who is this that even forgives sins? On a similar occasion, Jesus told a paralytic that his sins are forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees began to ask each other, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and the people listening to him began asking himself, who is this that speaks with such authority? Jesus cast demons out of a man and the people who witnessed it asked, who is this that commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem while the crowds of people were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And all the people in Jerusalem were asking, who is this? The question of Jesus' identity was posed even by himself. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? During Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, the high priest demanded that he tell them who he is. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is the question Pontius Pilate asked of Jesus as well. Are you the king of the Jews? It's an identity question. It's asking who is this man, Jesus Christ? Matthew answers all these questions. Here at the beginning of his gospel, we're told who Jesus is. Look at verse one of our sermon text. Matthew gives us Jesus's name, and then he proceeds to attribute three different titles to Jesus. Those titles are Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Uh, And each of these tells us something about Jesus Christ, who he is, something important 
about who he is. And, and when we understand who he is, then we can better understand the questions of how, when, where, and why uh, that are related to Jesus as well. So uh, it's my intention and my goal this morning to unpack these titles in order that we may better understand who Jesus is. Now, Matthew uses a, a very Jewish method of introducing Jesus to his readers. Uh, he writes in verse one that he's providing the book of the genealogy of Jesus. And I say this as a very Jewish method because books of genealogy go all the way back to the beginning of mankind. Uh, for example, you may recall that in Genesis 5.1, it speaks about the, books of the, the book of the genealogy of Adam. And then the rest of Genesis 5 traces Adam's family lineage through Seth, Enosh, Canaan, and then all the way to Noah and his three sons. Then in Genesis 6, verse 9, we read something similar about Noah. It says, this is the genealogy of Noah. And then Moses, who is writing the book of Genesis, uh, Moses lists Noah uh, and his three sons are identified uh, and then goes on to describe how the Lord sent a flood upon the earth. The language of a book of genealogy is even used to describe the events of the creation week. And this is perhaps surprising. Uh, after summarizing what happened on the six days of creation in Genesis 1, Moses begins Genesis 2 by describing how the Lord rested on the seventh day. And then he concludes the account of the creation week in Genesis 2-4 by writing, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, a more literal translation of Genesis 2-4 is this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, or this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. And if you think that a, a genealogy is merely an account of who begat who, then Genesis 2-4 is going to pose a difficulty for you. You're gonna be wondering how the creation week can be described as a, a genealogy. To, to understand our sermon text, we need to understand that the Jewish uh, concept of genealogy is different than what we typically think of it as Americans. A genealogy is not merely a record of people begetting other people, it's also a record of historical events and circumstances. This is why Genesis 6 is called the genealogy of Noah, yet it only contains the name of Noah's three sons. Not a very extensive genealogy, but when we understand that a, con that, that a genealogy includes circumstances and events as well as people begetting people, then we understand, oh, Genesis 6 actually is a genealogy of Noah because it includes all the circumstances and events of the flood. And it goes on for the next three chapters to tell about the circumstances and events of the flood. So when we read about the, the genealogy of Jesus here in our sermon text, we should understand that this isn't just a list of people's names. It's also a list of circumstances and events. It's 2,000 years of Israel's history highlighting some of the important circumstances and events that contribute to the identity of Jesus Christ. It would be accurate to say, therefore, that Matthew begins his gospel by immediately introducing us to the hero of his gospel. This hero is the fulfillment of all the hopes and promises God gave to Israel, and especially those hopes and promises God gave to Abraham and David. 
Matthew tells us that the name of the hero is Jesus. Now, because we're so familiar with the name Jesus, we might not pause to give consideration to the significance that Matthew is placing upon the name right now. But, it's very impo- but this is a very important part of this hero's identity. Uh, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves, or it could be translated Jehovah is salvation. The original Jewish audience to which Matthew was writing would have understood the significance of this name. They wouldn't have needed it spelled out for them. They would have, uh, they would have read verse one and immediately understood that Jesus bears the name of a savior. And the question they would have naturally been asking is, who is he gonna save? And what is he gonna save them from? Their answer to these questions would have been influenced by the title that immediately follows after Jesus' name. Matthew attributes the title Christ to Jesus. Look again at verse one. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now understand that Christ is a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. For Matthew to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And that's a big claim. In fact, that's a huge claim. It's huge because the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah their entire existence as a nation. When they came into being as a nation, there was already an expectation and anticipation of the Messiah and the promises of God indicated that Messiah would be coming through this Jewish nation of Israel. And they were especially anticipating the um, arrival of the Messiah at the time that Jesus was born. And this is because many of the Jewish scholars had discerned from the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be born right about this time. So when, when Matthew sits down to write his gospel, the first two things he says is that the hero of his gospel is named Jehovah Saves, and he's the long-anticipated Messiah prophesied throughout the history of Israel. Matthew's Jewish readers would have been very interested to hear more about this hero. And they would have been especially interested in Jesus' genealogy because his pedigree is highly relevant to the claim that he is the Christ. After all, all the Jews in that day knew that the Messiah needed to come from the tribe of Judah because Genesis 49.10 says that that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And all the Jews also knew that the Messiah needed to come from the line of David because 2 Samuel 7, 12, uh, God promises David that he will establish a king from amongst David's descendants. So the Jews knew that anyone who claimed to be a Messiah, the Messiah, would need to be able to show that they had descended from Judah and as well from David. And Matthew accomplishes both of these things by giving us Jesus' Jesus's genealogy. But there's a, a peculiar challenge that Matthew faced when giving Jesus' genealogy. Normally, it would just be a simple matter of showing the person's genealogy uh, uh, of, of showing the genealogy by tracing their lineage through their, their father, uh, their biological father. But Jesus doesn't have a biological father. Because he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus only has a biological mother, 
which is to say Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Yet Matthew still traces Jesus' lineage through Joseph. Why does he do that? Is Matthew trying to hide the fact that Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father? Is Matthew not being entirely truthful with his readers? Why would he trace the lineage of Jesus through Joseph when he knew that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father? Because Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father. This is not a trivial point. This is not a trivial point because an adopted child has the same status within the family and the same hereditary rights as a biological child does. For example, when Moses was, uh, Moses was adopted by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and this means that he was legally entitled to the status and all the benefits of the royal family into which he was adopted. Hebrews 11 Verses 25 and 26 confirms this when it tells us that Moses refused the riches and treasures of Egypt that, were, that he was rightly entitled to. He was rightfully entitled to all the riches and treasures of Egypt, but he refused them. By faith, it goes on to say, Moses forsook his royal position because he esteemed the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than all the treasure of Egypt. So had he wanted to, Moses could have laid claim to all the luxuries and privileges of Pharaoh's house, just as if he was a biological heir of Pharaoh. That's what adoption does. That's what adoption does. And this is a wonderful thing because you and I have been adopted into the family of God. And consequently, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 17, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a second. Because of our adoption into God's family, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Now this is a rich and glorious declaration of our status as children of God. Time does not permit me to elaborate on it right now, so I'll, I'll leave it there for you to consider and dwell on, and we'll come back and study this at another time. But when Matthew was giving the genealogy of Jesus, he traces the lineage through Joseph because Jesus was legally Joseph's son by means of adoption. And realize, Matthew is very open about this relationship between Jesus and Joseph. Matthew is not trying to hide the fact that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Quite the contrary, immediately, after laying out this genealogy, Matthew proceeds to describe how Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, he tells about how Joseph initially didn't understand the situation. He initially intended to divorce Mary because he assumed that she had been unfaithful to him. But then the angel Gabriel came and explained the true nature of Mary's pregnancy and Joseph uh, uh, accepted and believed. And so Matthew is, is, is not trying to pull a fast one here with this genealogy. If you look at verse 16, you'll notice how carefully he introduces Joseph into the genealogy. After consistently writing, so-and-so begot so-and-so for every generation in this ge genealogy, Matthew makes an obvious deviation from this pattern when he gets to Joseph. Look at verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, 
of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. The word whom there is it's feminine. It can point only to Mary. Matthew is saying uh, Jacob begot Joseph and Joseph is the husband of Mary and Jesus was born of Mary. And so the reader would uh, be expecting, this is not what the reader would be expecting. The reader who's going through this for the first time would be expecting Jacob begot Joseph and Joseph begot Jesus. But because that's not how it happened, Matthew breaks from this pattern and he writes, Jacob begot Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now you'll notice that the genealogy in our sermon text is divided into three sections. And this is made clear in verse 17. The first section begins with Abraham and it lists many of the patriarchs. The second section begins with David and it lists many of the kings of Israel. And the third section begins with the Babylonian exile and it lists many of the common people, people you've probably never heard of. It's not a coincidence that the first two divisions line up with, the, with two of the titles that Matthew attributes to Jesus in verse one. He gives Jesus the title son of Abraham, which identifies Jesus with the first division of the genealogy. And Matthew gives Jesus the title son of David, which identifies Jesus with the second division. And both of these titles have rich theological significance to the person and work of who Jesus is. To say that Jesus is the son of Abraham means that he's an Israelite, right? And I, as, I, as I also uh, mentioned earlier, uh, that would have been very important to Matthew's Jewish audience because the Messiah could not be a Gentile. Um, but there's more to it than that, more to the title son of Abraham than that. Abraham began his life as a pagan. If you recall, he was chosen by God and called out of his pagan family and pagan country to become the father of many nations. This was God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses one through three. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now note the last line in God's promise to Abraham. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, God says to Abraham. The Lord repeated this promise to Abraham at least three times, three more times during Abraham's lifetime. But when God repeated this promise, he added one little word that enhanced Abraham's understanding of the promise. And when he repeated this promise uh, and added that little word, it enhances our understanding of the promise as well. It's the word seed. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 26, four, God says to Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then again in Genesis 28, 14, God says to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Please, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3. The book of Galatians was written 
to several churches. There wasn't just one church called Galatia. Um, Galatia was a region, and there were several churches, multiple churches in the southern region of Galatia to whom this book was written. And these churches were composed of Gentile Christians. So they didn't have a, a rich biblical heritage like the Jewish convert to Christianity had. So the apostle Paul was writing to them and he takes, he, he, he takes the effort, makes the effort to explain to them the role that Abraham plays in their own Christian faith as Gentile Christians. And he writes something in, in verse eight that surprises a lot of Christians today. Look at uh, Galatians three, verse eight. Paul writes that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Now I say that this surprises a lot of Christians because a lot of Christians have been taught that the gospel wasn't preached until the New Testament. A lot of Christians have been taught that the Old Testament is all about the law of God and the New Testament is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet here in Galatians 3.8, Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And notice why it was preached. Verse eight says that it was foreknown that God would save the Gentiles by faith, so the gospel was preached to Abraham. And what was the content of this gospel message that was preached? It was when God declared to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. That's what it says in Galatians 3.8. Let's read it together. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So all the way back in Genesis 12.3, when God was calling Abraham out of his father's house, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham, the gospel by which the Gentiles would eventually be saved by faith. Now look at Galatians 3.16. Having already established that the gospel was preached to Abraham when the Lord told him that all the nations shall be blessed, Paul now focuses on the seed mentioned in that promise. Galatians 3.16 says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to the seed who is Christ. So when God keeps promising to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is pointing to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is pointing to Jesus Christ. The word seed is always singular. Even back in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, twenty-six four, 26, 4, and 28, 14, seed is always singular. It has always been pointing to the one person and one person only, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So when the apostle Paul is educating the Galatians on this point, and he calls their attention to the fact that this is a singular seed, not a plural seed, but a singular seed, and he tells them that this is pointing to Jesus Christ, and that all the fulfillments of the promises that were made to, to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look at verses uh, four, uh, 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is any, everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let me read 14 again, because that, that's very important. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So coming back to our sermon text, back to Matthew's genealogy. When Matthew identifies Jesus by the title son of Abraham, he's telling his Jewish readers that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Matthew is essentially saying, do you remember how the Lord kept promising Abraham that all the nations will, will be blessed through his seed? Well, let me introduce you to his seed. His name is Jehovah Saves. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that our nation has been waiting for. Now, brothers and sisters, the gospel in which you and I have been saved is the same gospel that was preached to Abraham. After all, there's only one gospel, right? That's a, a point the apostle Paul made very clear to the Galatians as well. Uh, he said in Galatians 1 that if anyone preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. So if you've been united to Christ by faith, then you are what? You are a son and daughter of Abraham. That's what it says in Galatians 3.7. If your Bible's still open to Galatians 3.7, look at it yourself. You are a child of Abraham. And if you have been joined to Christ by faith, then you are the recipient of of the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's exactly what it says in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As Romans 2.28 teaches us, a Jew is not a Jew because of an outward characteristic, but of an inward characteristic. You are not a son or daughter of Abraham because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. If you are a son, or son and daughter of Abraham, that's because you have faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the true son of Abraham, anyone who's united to him by faith is a recipient of the promises made to Abraham and his descendants. Knowing this, brothers and sisters, opens up the treasury of God's promises and blessings to you. For example, Psalm 73, 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. Truly God is good to Israel. If you are in Christ, then this promise is spoken to you. This is not a, pro a promise made to ethnic Israel. This is not a pro promise made to political Israel. This is a promise to spiritual Israel, to everyone who's united to Christ by faith. Likewise, when Psalm 98, point, uh, 98 verse three says that uh, the Lord has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. This is a promise to everyone who's united to Christ by faith. Once again, it's not referring to ethnic Israel. It's referring to spiritual Israel, those who are, have faith in Christ. When Psalm 118.2 encourages Israel to say his mercy endures forever, that's an encouragement for you and me. You and I are able to say his mercy endures forever because we are united to Christ by faith. 
because we are united to the true son of Abraham by faith, we can proclaim with all confidence that his mercy to us endures forever. And when Psalm 121 verse four says, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep, this is referring to God's protection for everyone who's in Jesus Christ. So you and I should read this and say, yes, this is an assurance that's given to me because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that some of you have been influenced by a system of doctrine that claims ethnic Israel is the chosen people of God and Gentile Christianity is a completely different group of people and the two must always be kept separate. If this is something you believe or if this is something that you're trying to work through and and gain greater clarity on, then let me encourage you to read Ephesians 2 and 3. Specifically, pay attention to the last half of Ephesians 2 and the first part of Ephesians 3. You'll see that there was, a t- there, there was indeed a time when the Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. There was a time when the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world. But when the gospel went out to the Gentiles... Then those who were far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. And Christ Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation to create in himself one new man from the two, right? One new man from the two. And Ephesians 2.16 says that through the cross, Jesus reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body. Don't miss that. One body, not two, one Gentiles, therefore, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the Jews and members of the household of God, it goes on to say. Ephesians 3.6 reiterates this point, emphasizing that Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promises because they are in Christ through the gospel. This, brothers and sisters, is the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham. There is no longer a division between Jew and Greek. All who have faith in Jesus Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham, members of the same body. This should be a a great comfort to us because this means that every promise given to Israel is given to those who are in Christ. The third title Matthew gives to Jesus in verse one of our sermon text is son of David. Coming back to this, we can see the second division. This, this title, son of David, clearly identifies Jesus with the second division in the genealogy. And Matthew's original audience would have taken uh, interest in this title as well because there's, there was a strong anticipation in those days that a Davidic king would restore Israel to her former glory. And this expectation was based on the promise that the Lord spoke, in, uh, spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now notice in this prophecy this promise given to David, the word seed is once again contained in the promise, just as it was the promise spoken to Abraham. 
And not surprisingly, the word seed is singular. It's referring to one specific descendant of David. And Matthew is telling his readers that this promised seed of David is Jesus. Now the, the title son of David was known in the, in the days of Jesus as a messianic title. And so the only people who would call Jesus the son of David would be people who believed that he was the Messiah. And of the four gospel writers, Matthew gives the most attention to this point. For example, in Matthew 9, verse 7, very early in Jesus' public ministry, two blind men called out, have mercy on us, son of David. They were acknowledging him as the Messiah. In Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman approached Jesus crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering, suffering terribly from a demon possession. And once again, uh, in Matthew 20, verses 30 and 31, just before Jesus entered Jerusalem, we read that two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And then we read that the crowds rebuked these blind men, telling them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They were acknowledging Christ as Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And there's a pattern in these encounters that the discerning reader will be able to detect. It's the humble people of society, those who are sick, those who are lame, those who are the outcasts, those who toil under the sun. It's the humble people who are first to call out to Jesus as the son of David. And it's the prestigious religious authorities who are threatened by this. They don't like people calling Jesus the son of David. They know that this is a messianic title and they're unwilling to admit that the title belongs to Jesus. And this tension between the excitement of the humble people and the hostility of the religious authorities reached its peak on the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was riding into town on a donkey when the people were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And this made the chief priests and the scribes indignant. They said to Jesus, do you hear what those people are saying? Tell them to stop. Jesus responded by saying that if the people were silenced, the stones would begin to cry out that Jesus is the son of David. Amen. The point being, Jesus is the Messiah and nothing is able to suppress that truth. So what does it mean to you and me that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David? It means what it is meant to God's people for all, 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 ever since Christ came, that the, that the person we've placed our hope and trust in is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the promised seed of David and his kingdom is, ever, is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. As citizens of this kingdom, we live under the protection of his wise and powerful rule. And we go forth into the world equipped with his supreme authority. It's not a coincidence that Matthew ends his gospel with a declaration of Jesus' kingly authority. 
In Matthew 28, 19, the second to last verse, Jesus tells his followers to go make disciples of all nations. But he doesn't tell them to go do this in their own strength and wisdom. He tells them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, Jesus Christ, and he will be with us as we go forward as his disciples every step of the way. He is with us every step of the way. In other words, when you're going out to do the work that the Lord has called you to, brothers and sisters, your work is empowered by the authority of King Jesus. In the same way that God promised the Israelites that he would go before them and drive out the Canaanites, so the Lord Jesus Christ exercises his divine authority to equip you for your calling, and he goes with you in order to make it happen. So Christian husbands, when you walk in faith and obedience to the son of David, he equips you to love your wife just as Jesus loved the church. Christian wives, when you walk in faith and obedience to the son of David, he equips you to submit to your husbands and respect him. Christian children, when you walk in faith and obedience to the son of David, he equips you to honor your parents and obey them. Christian employers, the son of David equips you to be fair with your employees and treat them with respect. Christian employees, the son of David equips you to work hardly for your boss as if you were working for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christian students, the son of David equips you to acquire true wisdom, wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. For the Christian who's suffering, the son of David equips you to give thanks in all circumstances. For the Christian who's feeling abandoned, the son of David equips you to trust that he has not left you as an orphan. For the Christian who's feeling like nobody cares for their soul, the son of David becomes your refuge and your portion in the land of the living. For the Christian whose father and mother have forsaken them, the son of David equips you to trust that he will take care of you. For the Christian who's passing through the waters, the son of David equips you to, to know and to trust that, that uh, he's with you and the rivers will not overtake you. For the Christian who's walking through the fire, the son of David equips you to trust that you will not be scorched or burned. These, brothers and sisters, these and a thousand similar explanations are what it means for you, to you, that Jesus is the son of David. It means you are loved. It means you are forgiven. It means you are cared for. It means you are secure because he is with you and he will not forsake you. He will not leave you, but he is with you all of your days. Matthew's third division of the genealogy begins with the deportation of the Jews into Babylonian exile and extends all the way up until the time of Jesus' birth. Now, there are a couple of names in this division that you might recognize, but it's essentially a list of common people, people you've never heard of. In the case of the first two divisions in Jesus' genealogy, it's pretty obvious why Matthew separated the, the patriarchs and, and the kings into their own divisions, right? That, uh, this lines up very well with Jesus being the son of Abraham and the son of David. But what do we do with this third division? How is this supposed to reflect upon the identity of Jesus? 
I'm not sure that this is exactly what Matthew's intention was, but it shows Jesus' affiliation with the lowly and common people. Remember the point that I made uh, toward the beginning of the sermon, that it was the humble people of the world who were the first ones to recognize Jesus as a Messiah. Jesus was known to be a friend to the lowly. He was known to be a friend to sinners. He was scorned by the scribes and Pharisees because he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He treated the immoral woman at the well with respect and compassion. And many of his followers had exceedingly sinful pasts. Uh, He chose a tax collector to be one of his disciples. An immoral woman who had been possessed by seven demons became one of his most faithful followers. I suspect Matthew did intend for us to make this connection because Jesus and the lowly people of the world um, uh, have a a, a recurring relationship that we see throughout the scriptures. And and Matthew, uh, surprisingly, includes the name of five women in this genealogy. I say this is surprising because it was highly unusual in that day in in a patriarchal culture to include women in a genealogy of men begetting sons. It makes us question why Matthew included the names of these five women. And the one factor that applies to all five of these women, I mean, there there have been various explanations given, I think all very good and credible explanations, but there's one factor that applies to all five of these women and it pertains to their sexual activity. Each of these women, each of them, was either known to participate in sinful sexual activity or thought to have participated in sinful sexual activity. Tamar pretended to be a a harlot so that she could be impregnated by her father-in-law. Rahab was well known as a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. And Bathsheba had an adulterous relationship with David resulting in a pregnancy that exposed the sin to make it public. Ruth her suspicion of sexual sin is not quite as obvious. Uh, Ruth 3 verse 7 says that after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. And then Ruth comes softly to him while he's sleeping as to not wake him up. And she uncovered his feet, it says in Ruth 3 verse 7. She uncovered his feet and then she lay down next to him. Now, if you consult a Hebrew lexicon, you'll see that the word that's translated as feet doesn't always mean feet. Uh, The word can refer to any of the body parts below the waist. So it's questionable what Ruth actually uncovered while Boaz was sleeping. And given Boaz's startled reaction when he awoke, it's, it raises suspicions of how Ruth positioned herself when she laid down next to him. So whether rightly or wrongly, there's suspicion about Ruth's behavior with Boaz. Now, it's obvious that Matthew intentionally included these first four women in the genealogy, all right? He, he intentionally inserted them in, in their appropriate places. And it makes sense that he did this when you consider that Mary is the fifth woman he mentions because Mary was suspected of sexual immorality as well. So what's the point of all this? That Jesus is not ashamed to associate with sinners. 
that Jesus is closely aligned with people who have borne public shame because of their actual sin, as well as people who have borne public shame because of their suspected sin, their perceived sin. When he rebukes the the Pharisees, Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Then Then he chides them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I, Jesus goes on to say, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice how Jesus is focusing on the merciful nature of his incarnation, how he came for the sick, the weak, the sinners in order to call them to repentance. Jesus is merciful. He is compassionate. He's a friend to the downtrodden. His very own mother, whom he deeply loved and tenderly cared for, bore the shame of perceived sin that she never actually committed. So Jesus knows how to comfort those who have been humbled, those who have been shamed. He knows how to have mercy upon those who have been ridiculed in the eyes of the public. Do you remember the scripture passage that was used for the call to worship today? It's Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. And I cannot think of a more fitting conclusion to this sermon than to hear the words of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the friend of sinners, inviting us to come to him with our cares and burdens. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. And let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.